This is going to be a challenge today because when you come, when I come back every maybe once or twice a year, there's just such a flood of emotion that comes over you. It's like, I, where do you begin? Where do, how do I say all the things that I'm feeling? And it's very difficult to, to condense them because there are two things that I do whenever I come back to Ventura County. One is I, I always drive down Creek Road, which is where I was raised, and I stop for a couple of minutes, and that's sort of my touchstone. I look at the land out there where, you know, where I was raised. There used to be a house, and there were buildings, and everything was washed away in that flood. But I still stop, and I look at that, and I try to say, okay, let's put it in perspective. What has happened? Where have I come from? Where am I going? And it's a very emotional thing for me each time, no matter how many times I visit. The same is true here, that when I come here, I think of how many experiences, that you have all these flashes of faces and emotions. And I remember being, being in that classroom the last time we lived here, and, and all these guys were little guys. I mean, they were, well, they were young guys. Definitely wasn't little He's always little. He's never going to be big. But, but he, had a, he didn't have a beard when he was eight, you know? So now I like it, too, by the way. Jeff, I just, by the way, I did say there's something fishy with some of us having the same shirt today wearing here, Jeff. Yeah. And you know why I'm saying? I, I, you know, I truly would like to just call everybody's name because that would be a way of honoring you. I can't. We won't have enough time. But I do want to kind of call out a couple of people because... When I come and I see Lisa and I see Marissa, I am so moved by that. I'm, I'm moved by your example because I know how difficult it is to live faithfully, believe me, because I have done both. I know what it's, you know, if you don't have somebody with you all the time supporting you and encouraging you and challenging you, it's difficult. And so you're to be commended. Marissa, I just I love, I mean, it's so nice to see Instead of the ankle biter that was always yanking on me or running into me, and uh, it's so nice to see you like this grown up. So, and I would truly always be remiss to not commend the elders here. It, what a tremendous job that they've done, you know, to be able to to keep this group together and and through all the difficult times, and and particularly for Mason and and uh, what's his wife's name? Pagey. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a joke. I try to, you know, you know, Mason is so good at humor. Like the class this morning, he's so seamless with that humor that I thought, I, I want to use some of the humor, but ultimately you have to be authentic. You have to kind of be who you are, so I won't go too deeply in that. Other than to say, yesterday I did a wedding in Orange County, and the woman's name was Sarah, and the man was one of my students many years ago. And as I was standing here, it struck me, and I said, Sarah, you're probably not going to like this, but... My son had a dog named Sarah, a little black Italian-looking dog. And you're Italian, and you have dark hair. And that dog was so annoying. That dog just annoyed the fire out of me. And I threatened all the time with Henry. I kept threatening, I'm going to get rid of that dog. And he would just get into tears, and he would go tell his mom, and she'd say, you're being cruel. I, probably, I, I really wouldn't have. And then one day Henry asked me, he said, do you love Sarah? And I thought about it. I said, Henry... I love you, and I love Sarah because you love Sarah. And that's what I think when I look at Mason. It's not that I don't love uh, Pagey. I do. But I love Pagey because Mason loves Pagey. 
and I love that they that what she has been to him since I've been here. So, what a great time! What a great time to be here, and how we can all be so thankful. And then finally, I got to say one thing that just sort of gave me chills. We were singing that last song, and I was tell you, I was in 2012. I was in Israel, and I was in at one point I was in Caesarea, down where Paul actually went off on one of his voyages, last voyage actually, going to Rome. And right next in Caesarea, there's this giant amphitheater, amphitheater there, and it's it is just massive. And they were telling me what the acoustics were like in this. And so we were down. I went all the way down to the base of this this giant you know structure, and there was a group way up on top. I mean, it's like a half a mile. It's like being in Rome. And and I said, well, you know what? They said, well. So this has great acoustics. I said, okay, I'm going to try it. So I sang to Canaan's land, I'm on my way. And I sang the whole verse of that song. And the people on the top started clapping because they could hear it so clearly. <laughs> Amazing acoustics. And then I went into Jerusalem and I went to the old temple and I thought, they told me the same thing. The acoustics are amazing in this temple. I said, okay. So I sang, I whispered night with Eben Pinion and you could hear it in there. It was, it was incredible. Anyway, had nothing to do with this, but just wanted to share that with you. Uh, so, today I want to talk about, about some scenes. And I want to begin by telling you, uh, sharing with you a scene. In my business, in photography, a lot of my students and friends uh, travel internationally. They're in a lot of areas of conflict. In Desert Storm, several of my students were in Desert Storm. Uh, a lot of them are in Afghanistan still. And so I interact with these people, and they tell me stories. There was one, this, one, this young man was not a student of mine, somebody that I had met. And I was, one day I was at a seminar with him, and he told his story, and it just it moved me so much that I said, I, I want to share that story. And he had been, he had been I, I, it might have been during Desert Storm, I don't know, or it could have been in Afghanistan. I don't remember the exact, the exact conflict, but I do remember him saying they were under fire, there was smoke everywhere, everybody was tired, nobody could sleep. And what the journalists usually do is those people that, have, that make a living doing this, they will usually get together and they'll kind of hire one interpreter or hire one driver, somebody who's really courageous. And they'll ride with that person. That person can navigate everything's happening and to try to keep them alive. And it's, not, it's really a very dangerous proposition. One of my friends was killed three years ago in Libya. So it's difficult. So this, this man, his name's Peter, Peter had been, he, I don't know if he was on foot for a while or what, but he said he was just exhausted. He hadn't slept in two days. And he's all dirty, and it's so dangerous. And he's finally, he's, you know, he, he's in this car. This, this driver's got him. And there's somebody else, another journalist in there, so there's not much room. And they're going along, and they, they, this man's wandering on the side of the road, and they pick him up, and they put him in the car, and they start, you know, they're sitting there like this very closely. And Peter says, I'm just so tired, I can barely keep my eyes open. And we're winding these roads, hoping we're not going to get killed. And the man next to me, he said he just had the most peaceful eyes. And he could speak enough English that he was talking to me. And he, and he, asked, him, you know, how, he asked me how I was doing. And then he said, you know, you're, you're so tired. Here. And he, he scooted over and he said, lay your head in my lap. And he said, I, I'm so tired. I laid my head in my lap and this man... This, you know, probably Iraqi man, you know, he put his hand and he started rubbing my head until I was falling asleep. And then I learned later 
that an hour earlier, his wife and children had been bombed and killed. And he was wondering the thing. And in his deep grief, he was compassionate. He had the ability to comfort somebody else. And I've always, stories always move me. I always thought, isn't that what we should be? And isn't that the picture that we have of Christ? That even in his deep grief, he has the ability to comfort others and, and offer compassion. So I decided today what I want to do is, and it's a little different, it's kind of, it's actually fun. I always feel like I can come here and I, I can be kind of non-traditional and unorthodox, which is my nature anyway. But it's, it's in contrast to Mason because I know that Mason is, spends so much time with doctrine and, and, he, and he works so hard at that, and I love that. And so I can, I can do some different kinds of preaching and I, and I hope that you appreciate that. So I want to begin today in the book of Luke in the 10th chapter. And again, we're going to, I'm going to, what I want to do is talk about a couple of scenes. One of the things about writing, and in, in, the more that you study writing, they tell you that writing is really creating a scene to put you as the reader there. So you create it or you tell that story in a way that, that somebody can feel like they're part of it. And I'm telling you, the Bible does this better than anything. There was nothing that, that probably drew me, probably to Christianity, uh, earlier than the book of John. And I've told that story to some of you, probably know that. When I was probably 20 or 21 years old, really difficult time in my life. You know, my family was gone. My mother had died. And, and there, I mean, there just wasn't much of a family there at that point. And I was working in San Bernardino. And at, for what I would do after work is I would go home and I had an apartment. And I didn't even have the lights turned on. And I would sit there by candlelight, and I would drink wine and read the Bible until I passed out almost. One, I didn't burn the place down. But I, would, I was so moved by the book of John, when I read through the book of John, that that really sort of stirred something within me to want to know more, to want to know what does this all mean and how do I fit into this. And, and by, thankfully, by the grace of God, I was able to, you know, I led to Mason, and Mason became, you know, he, you know, he's not just the one who baptized me. He's the one who taught me, and he's the one who challenged me, and he's the one who continues to challenge me and, you know, set the right foundation for me. So that all happened. But to go back, the word that God had given me. So words are always important to me. They're very important to me. And somebody asked me, you know, not too long ago, they said, are you going to always uh, be a photographer? Are you going to always make pictures? And I said, well, I will always make pictures, but probably not with a camera. And that's the goal, is to always make pictures that people would understand. So that's, again, why I love to do these scenes so well. I want to begin in Luke, the 10th chapter, at verse 25. And uh, actually, I'll probably, well, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put and put into the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right off the bat, I want to say to you, can you see that? Have you seen someone like that in your life who was a smart aleck? Somebody in class who said, yeah, well, you know, they'll stand up and they will challenge the teacher. And they're not challenging necessarily to really get to gain the knowledge. They're challenging sometimes just to show off what they know. So here's immediately, here's a man stands up and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is, it, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem. I love this. I love this answer. He could have just said, your neighbor is Jordan. Your neighbor is anybody. Your neighbor is Gary. He didn't say who your neighbor is. He said, I'm going to show you who your neighbor is. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to create for you a scene that you should be able to see yourself in. And then you see by that scene whether or not you understand. Right? Think, think about the scenes created in To Kill a Mockingbird. Think of how that changed our country. Or Uncle Tom's Cabin. Think about the scenes in those books and how that changed the mindset of America. It does. So it says, he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, and he pouring oil and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denaro, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and saying, "Take care of him, and whatever more that you know that you spend, I'll pay you when I come back through." Basically, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man? So. What are you going to answer? Well, of course, the guy who didn't just pass, or the two that didn't just pass by, but the person who took the risk, and it, by the way, it could be a risk. It really could. It was a very dangerous area. So to stop and help somebody, you might get mugged yourself. But he took that upon himself. Even though he wasn't religious like they were, he did it. You know what? I can see that. Now, it helps me because I've been there now. I've been to that area, and so I know what the terrain looks like, and I, that passage area, so it does help me reinforce that a little better. But even before I had ever been there, I can, I can picture that. And you can picture that because most of us have probably seen somebody like that. We've probably been driving down the road in Ventura or, hey guy, Ventura or Oxnard or L.A., and you've probably seen people lying on the side of the road. Beaten, injured. I see it all the time. I saw it not two weeks ago. You know? So we do see this. We, and what do we do when we see? Do we drive by and go, oh my, that poor soul? Well, we have a choice whenever we see somebody. So, but the point is, Jesus says, I can tell you what it means, or I can show you what it means. I can show you by this story, by this scene. And so before I even get further, I just want to encourage you, when you study the Bible, it's not a book of rules. This book is a, a love letter from God. If you, had, if you were suddenly in love with somebody, you would read every letter that they wrote, every sentence. This is a love letter from God to help us understand Him and ourselves. Now, this is where I wanted to go below there. It says in verse 38, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. We all heard this story. But Martha was distracted with much serving, right? You remember the story how that, you know, Martha finally says to Jesus, Hey, well, you know, it's great that, you know, Mary's in here listening to you, but she could be helping. She could be doing something. And Jesus said, Whoa, basically saying, mellow out a little here, Martha. I know I appreciate you doing this, and it shows great respect for me what you're doing. I, I love that. But what she's doing is also important, too. You know what? Immediately I see something here. And maybe you have never seen this. How many people do you know, brothers and sisters, or brothers, are as different as can be? I have two sons that are as different as can be. One of them is Donald Trump, and the other one is Bernie Sanders. I, don't, I mean, they're just as different as can be. So, you know, that's, I say that to make you tough. You'll understand it. Here's, here is Martha. It, she's not being rebuked as such. We call it a rebuke. But that's her nature. She shows her love by because she's very organized. She's very... When I look at read about Martha, I just insert the name Yolanda, my sister-in-law. Here's Yolanda. Here she's always proper, always organized, always on time, going to do what's right, and she's going to bam, bam, bam. And then here's the other. Here's Mary who's... And maybe she's a little, you know, different, you know? A little slower. I don't know. But anyway... This, so you have that scene. So we have both of these people with these different personalities. So I want to continue with this scene and go back. Let's go to Luke, the seventh chapter, for a minute. Now, Jesus has just healed a centurion's servant. What Luke does is Luke compiles a bunch of stories, uh, a bunch of basically a bunch of uh, vignettes. Of Jesus healing people. And I, it's difficult to find the chronological order. Quite frankly, it's very difficult. But the scenes are accurate, and they're just put in an order, almost like bam, 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 bam. So that you can see Jesus really seeing his deity, quite frankly, his ability to perform. So we see down here in verse 11, it says, Soon afterwards, he went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man has died, had died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a, cons- and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, Just, again, using your mind, think about that picture, what, what the writer has given us. Here, they're, here's Jesus with his disciples. It's probably dusty. They're going up to a town. Most towns had a gate. A gate that protected the town. They're going to the town gate, and as they come to the gate, here comes this procession out, and there's a, a person has died, and they're carrying him out. It's very emotional. You know, and the disciples are probably saying, Jesus, you know, let's go to the side here. We don't need, <laughs> that has nothing to do with us. Let's go around this, or let's wait till they pass. Let's do something. But what you see is that immediately we understand it's not only a, a man that's died, it's the son. Of a widow. It, times are difficult enough. Making a living was difficult enough. Here's the man of the family probably. And this is her maybe, maybe her only means of survival. And he's died. And Jesus you goes up to her. Look at his response. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. You know why that's so significant? Because a little later we're going to see Jesus is weeping. He tells her, don't weep. And the reason he's telling her, don't weep, he says, because I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. 
Then he came up and he touched the uh, her beer and the, I guess you'd call it the beer. i never seen one of those. But anyway, it's a garment, I'm sure. And the uh, bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. I love that picture. He gave him back. He gave back this life to this person. And he gave, can you imagine what she felt? I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I can barely tell this story because I can visualize it. I can see that. I've been to dozens of funerals in my life. You can see this. You know what it's like. You know what grief is like. Can you imagine that? To have somebody walk up and intercede and give you back a life? That's a picture. That's a really a, a picture. And it says their fear seized them all. And yet they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. I, I would say so. I can't imagine anybody standing there and seeing that and not saying, yes, this is Jesus. <laughs> this guy is different. And I believe him. All right. So finally, to probably one of my favorite passages of all times, we're going to kind of weaving these stories together a little bit. And that's back to John, as I said, the book that I love so much. In John, the 11th chapter, at verse, uh, beginning at verse 1 here, it's, rather, it's a rather long, actually, maybe I won't read the whole thing. I think I'll... Yeah, I think I have to. Just bear with me. And I'm, I'm, I struggle a little bit because I'm finally to the age where I, where I have to wear reading glasses. Because when I look at this, it looks like a bunch of cockroaches jumping together. I don't know. And so I have to struggle, and I just left my reading glasses at home. So I, but I'm going to get through it. I, some of, the good thing is I have some memory. I probably could use them. So I'll back up a little bit. Now, a certain man was ill, right? So we start off as a, he's a man. Now we give him a name, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. By the way, I wanted to go to Bethany when I was in Israel. They wouldn't let me. Bethany is now owned, basically controlled by the Palestinians. The Palestinians own part of Jerusalem. You know, they own the Temple Square and other parts. And it's only like, I mean, you could stand up the top of the hill of Jerusalem and you could look over the valley and you could see Bethany. It's not that far, but nobody would take me there. They just said, nope, you would not survive it if you got in there. So I didn't get to go. Anyway, so he's going to Bethany. Uh, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And I know a lot has been written about this. Jesus loves everybody. Clearly he loves everybody. But what is being said is, is there's a relationship here. There's something about this person that they are friends, that there's a closeness about them. And we know that you care a lot about him. He's very ill, right? So the sister, uh, anyway, it says, uh, But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death, for it's, it's to, for the glory of God. Jumping down to verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. And again, I know you know this story. He could have come back immediately. He could have, you know, helped him not be ill. It wasn't that far away. But he stayed. He tarried. The Bible says he tarried for a reason. He told them why he tarried. I wanted you to see the glory of God. I wanted you to recognize how God works and the power that he's blessed me with. So he waited a while, right? And before he came. And so when he finally came back, 
You remember what the response that they had to him? Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them for their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Why, do, why mention that? Doesn't that draw a picture for you again? Once again, here is Martha, the practical one, the faithful one, the one who's going to go out and meet Jesus. And here is Mary, the emotional one, who's still lying back, not even, you know, she's still back and she's, people deal with emotions differently. And she was dealing with the emotions differently. Clearly she was dealing differently. Okay, so it says, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. She knew that was true. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, that God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I recognize that because I believe what you said. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. You're missing something. It's not just what's going to happen. Look now, I am the resurrection. I have that ability and that power. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Those are truths. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Let me stop for a second here. If I've not learned anything in this world because, because of the blessing that I've had to do some traveling, to go to some other countries, what I've realized is that there are a lot of good people all over the world who are very loving and love God in the way they think they love God who do not believe in Jesus Christ. That is the, what separates them from everything else. They can, they're the kind people. I've met so many kind people. From so many. Some of my best friends in Italy were Muslims. In fact, most of my friends in Italy were Muslims. Very loving, very giving. But they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the Christ. And that, when I think of all the things that, you know, I keep thinking what the Apostle Paul said, and then he said that what he wanted to do was to know Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that was the focus of his life. And that's what I see in our lives, in our world today, as our world continues to become as different as it is. That's the foundation. That's what we need to preach, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the only way that we're ever going to be connected to God to rise again. It's a pretty big mission. It's easy to go talk to people and say, yeah, we both believe in God and that's cool and right on. I read, you know, but to be able to say, but there's a difference. That Christ is the one that God promised. Pretty important message. And then it says, as they were going along, it says that when she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to go weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
She too recognized that. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Folks, don't, don't sell those words short. What I'm afraid of so often is when people read, particularly when they read the Bible, they read over something like that. He was deeply moved. La da da. You know what that means? That means it's excruciating. That means that I am. It troubles me. It hurts me. He was. He was deeply moved at what he saw. And he said, "Where have you laid him?" And they said to him, "Lord, come and see." And Jesus wept. Volumes have been written about how, why Jesus wept. I've heard so many different opinions about why Jesus wept. But I can tell you one of the reasons that Jesus wept. He was human. He was man. It hurt him to see other people hurt. We can say, well, he was weeping because they didn't recognize he was the Christ. They, they were weeping because they didn't, you know, he, he knew they would be lost. You know what? It goes much deeper than that. It goes to being human. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The one who understands what it means to weep and to grieve. That comforts me. It comforts me to know when I'm having a difficult time, and as you're having a difficult time, that someone does understand. That they truly know what it means to grieve and to weep. So then it says finally, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And as you know the story, he raises Lazarus up. And you probably also know the story, that it didn't end there, did it? You would think that there would be such rejoicing in the world after the people that had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus that you would say, That's, the story is over, Jesus is king, people will love him. But what happens is what happens, and that is the jealousy of human nature sometimes. And immediately the Jews, some of them got together and say, we can't let this go on. <laughs> we got to figure out how we're going to kill this guy. We've got to stop him, and we're, and we're also going to get rid of Lazarus because you can't have a guy who's been raised from the dead going around talking to everybody about he'd been raised from the dead. That's going to totally ruin our cause. So let's just eliminate, <laughs> eliminate those people. Now, again, time is, is jumping around. Every, every writer talks about basically the anointing, the anointing of Jesus, the uh, the, you know, the, the very expensive oil that was used. And by the way, the oil would come from a long ways. It wasn't raised around. They didn't, the plant wasn't raised around there. So it had, it had to be imported. So it was very valuable. And they, you know, one account says he, it's, it's poured on his head. Another account says that it was on his feet and that Mary used her hair to, to, to wash, you know, to basically cleanse his feet, which I'm going to read. But the days are difficult because one time they said it's two days before the Passover. The next time it's six days before the Passover. Maybe it's the same day. Maybe this happened twice. I don't know. I do know what happened. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. He's already been resurrected, right? Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Can you see that? 
Can you imagine there, talk about the who's who of dinners. I mean, here's the disciples and here's Lazarus who've been raised from the dead and here's Jesus in the midst of this and here's Mary and who knows all the people, maybe even Simon the leper, some say. I don't know. But it's, it's quite an entourage. So they gave a dinner for him. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment uh, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, What are we doing? You're wasting all this expensive stuff. This woman, we should take that, sell that, and give the money to the poor, which she didn't want to do anyway, right? And Jesus basically said, Leave her alone. You see, this practice of anointing was had, sort of had a twofold purpose. One purpose is to make somebody king, to, to set them apart, to say, to celebrate them, to consecrate them. The other part was to prepare for burial. It was part of a, a burial procedure. So it was very expensive. It's made everything smell good, right? A great aroma. The house probably smelled wonderful at that point, right? So he puts all this on. She uses her, watches his hair. And they say, you know, well, we shouldn't do this. But Jesus says, you know what? She, she, she gets it. She understands this. She understands what's happening to me. She understands I'm about to leave. She understands this is for my burial. And he even goes on to explain it a little bit. Right? And he also says, throughout history, people are going to remember her. They're going to remember Mary because of what she did. And this is going to serve as a monument. You know, we have monuments everywhere. This is an invisible monument that says something about somebody's belief. Now, what I see in this, and again, this is, you know, Mason is right. We never, you're never going to preach something, you know, you, can, you have to qualify as an opinion. And in, this is an opinion. This is a guess. I don't know. But when I look at these people, when I look at Mary, some people think it's Mary Magdalene. I, I don't. I'm not one of those people. I don't think it's the same person, but it, maybe it is. But I do know this. She sat at his feet. She listened to him talk. And she was very interested in what he had to say. And so when that came, I think she put it together. I think she was one that recognized this, you know. He is the Christ. And then she said, and this is what really gets me. Think about yourself. What, what would you give? What, what would you withhold from somebody who raised your brother from the dead? Would you, you think it was extreme that she took her hair and took expensive ointment on him and used her hair to wipe his feet? That seems extreme, doesn't it? But so is raising somebody from the dead. It's extreme. So, obviously the picture for, it should, these pictures, and I could, I've got many more, but I'm going to stop there. But when you look at these scenes, what these scenes should do to us is it should recognize that, you know, Look what he's done for me. And look what he's done for the people that I love. The hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Because he is risen. Because he is alive. Because he is powerful. Because he has the ability to raise the dead. What am I going to give him? Am I going to do something extreme? Radical? What would I withhold from him? It's a good question for all of us, not just for me, but for you. Should we not be grateful? I can't, 
I can't imagine how people, you know, I've had people say, you know, you're just kind of one of those Jesus freaks sometimes. You know, you get out there and you, just, you get all emotional about Jesus. I said, look what he's done. <laughs> Who else is there can do what he's done in the history of the world? Who else can do what he's doing right now? Who else can do what he's going to do? Nobody. Should I be emotional? Yes. Should I be extreme? Yes. You know, I said something yesterday. I, I was not going to say this, but I, I, I did this wedding, and a friend of mine, I only because I told him I would do it. And so it's, he works in the movie industry. So you can imagine the group. There's some from Ohio, but there's a lot of people who had, you know, tanned heads, sunglasses, uh, women adorned differently than you see every day. And uh, it was a, a different group. And he said to me, he said, look, I, I, I really appreciate you doing this, but he told me, you know, after I've already said I would do it, he's like, this can't be religious. You know, we're, we're not religious people. So, don't, you know, please don't do it. So I just nodded. And so when I got there and I got up, I said, you know, I said, Nick had asked me specifically to not make this a religious ceremony. And I said, so I'm kind of honoring that in a sense. I said, but he also knows I'm a journalist, and when you tell a journalist that they're not going to do something, then they're going to do it, you know, <laughs> first of all. And then I said, second of all, you know what? When you invite me, you invited God, and there's no way to get around it. And so I explained to them. I said, he asked me to speak about love, and I said, God is love. So how, how do we keep him out of this? And that was about as far as I went with it. But a couple people after me were like high-fived me on the side, like the waves were going, right on, man. <laughs> you know? So... It just tells you that people, they want to believe and that we shouldn't be afraid to believe. I've, I constantly feel like I don't do it enough, and yet I thank God for the gifts that he's blessed me with so that I can do it. Folks, you are so blessed to have the teaching that you have, to have the direction that you have, the leadership that you have, the family that you have. It is, this is so unusual, and I hope you cherish it. If you're not a Christian... We beg you to become a Christian, to, to believe that Jesus Christ is that one that was promised. He is the anointed one. He is the one who loves, who understands, who is powerful, who can raise you from the dead, who can forgive you of your sins, who can do all of those things. But he, he gives you the choice. He's not going to beat you over the head. You're not, he's not going to make you believe in him. If the scenes that he's given you don't convince you that he is the Christ. I don't know what would convince you. We would invite you. We beg you to come to believe in Christ and to be baptized into him and start that walk with him that will lead you to, to be with him forever. Won't you come as we stand? Stand.